The idea of nuclear-powered spacecraft goes back decades, almost science fiction days. Now it might become a reality. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, and NASA are teaming up on a demonstration project. They want to see if a nuclear rocket engine could power flight to Mars. Joining me with the details, NASA Program Manager, Dr. Anthony Calamino. Dr. Calamino, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom, and thank you for inviting me on. So we're talking about nuclear for propulsion and not nuclear to, like, keep the astronauts alive with electricity and to run the microwave oven inside there. So the Draco mission that we're partnering with DARPA on is actually a propulsion system. Is is That really is all that it will do is provide thrust to the vehicle. And is this thrust that would take it out of Earth into space or would it kick in once the vehicle is in space? So uh, we would actually place the uh, vehicle itself, the, in, the nuclear thermal rocket, we would actually place it into orbit around Earth using chemical systems, traditional chemical systems. And then once it is in orbit, a safe orbit around Earth, thousands of kilometers away, that's when we would conduct the experiment, the nuclear part. Because the levels of thrust needed to maneuver in space are infinitesimal, right, compared to what it takes to get it up and out into space from Earth. It certainly is a small fraction. Once you're in space, you need a small fraction of the force that it took to actually get the the hardware and the, the mass into space to move around, yes. And before we get into some of the details in between for this craft to come back from Mars... I don't know what the gravitational pull on Mars is, but would this be able to get it out of Mars and back into reentry here? So I just want to make clear that the the mission that we're talking about with Draco would just be a a, an in-space near-Earth demonstration. You know, it wouldn't be anything what we would call as an operational vehicle. It would just be a proof of demonstration of the technology itself. When we get to an operational vehicle, uh, something that we would want to use for Mars, uh, the nice thing about NTP is it provides us high thrust, you know, so we can generate, you know, up to uh, anywhere from 25,000 up to 75,000 pounds of thrust uh, from that engine. And that's the kinds of force that you would need to leave Earth. We call it Earth departure and get on to a trajectory that would that would give you the sufficient velocity or energy to get to Mars. And you've mentioned the Draco project with DARPA. That's Demonstration Rocket for Agile Cislunar Operations. Cislunar meaning what? Cislunar means the space between Earth and the moon is, is really the way that you could think of it. It extends a little bit beyond the moon, but uh, it is, is certainly the space that, that is around Earth and, and the moon. And just in layman's terms, how would this rocket engine work? Because you think of nuclear power as generating heat, and then it, that heat heats up water to produce steam or something like that. How would this work? You've got a nuclear reactor. Then then what? It, it, it uses some of those very similar principles that you just spoke to. It's, it's, it actually is an incredibly simple system. It is the reactor, which is used as a heat or thermal energy source, so it heats up hydrogen propellant that flows through it. And then we use the heated uh, hydrogen propellant through an exhaust nozzle to move the vehicle forward. And uh, so the reactor is really the energy source for propulsion. And it would heat up hydrogen and shoot it out a nozzle. Yes, and push it out a nozzle. What are the chief difficulties of this? Is it simply that people worry what could happen with a nuclear source if something went wrong with it, and then you'd have a bad problem? 
So, you know, we could talk about the safety of, of the nuclear aspects to the design. We actually are using uh, quite a bit of knowledge that's been gained with terrestrial systems on on how to manage fuel and how to manage the temperatures of those fuels and keep systems safe. And we're going to implement that in these systems as well. The real challenge for the NTP system is the reactor, but it's not the nuclear aspects of the reactor so much as it is the the high temperatures that that reactor is going to operate at. So, you know, eventually NASA would want to have a reactor that can operate at, at 2,700 or 2,800 degrees Celsius. And so that puts a lot of strain and stress on the materials. And, and that becomes the big challenge is, is picking the right materials that work at, for that application and making sure that they survive the function. We're speaking with Dr. Anthony Calamino. He's a program manager and a materials and structures engineer at NASA headquarters. Is there lessons learned for this from, say, the Navy's experience in nuclear submarines? Lessons learned with, with you know, it's not just the, the Navy reactors, it's all of the reactors, but certainly the Navy has a lot of safety protocols and safety procedures in the way that they operate those nuclear reactors. And we do have associations and, and, and uh, subject matter experts that, that we've talked to and work with on that to make certain that we implement their practices where it makes sense and we utilize their lessons learned on base systems. Of course, they're surrounded by cold water that could be, I guess, pumped in to cool things off if need be, not the case in cis-lunar space. Yeah, not the case in cislunar space, but the one nice thing about being in cislunar space is that you're outside of the biosphere of Earth. And again, these systems are going to be very safe. Uh, We have no reason to believe that that there would be a problem. But the one nice thing about it is that the consequences of something should happen is very, very small for Earth itself. Right. And of course, you'll be testing it without anybody aboard. Right. The, The first few instances of this... There will be autonomous vehicles that will be tested without, you know, any life form on, on board. And tell us about the programmatic aspects of this. What is DARPA bringing to it? What is NASA bringing to it? And when will we see something tried out? So NASA's responsibility is, is really on the key thing that, that we have the, you know, the strong technical interest in, which is the engine itself, right? The the reactor design, the reactor operation, and all of the turbo machinery that needs to wrap around that to make it an integrated engine. So NASA will be taking responsibility to manage and, and fund that activity. That would really be the core of what we would want to use for some of our missions. DARPA will be taking the responsibility for the overall integrated vehicle that would demonstrate it. There's cryofluids that need to be designed and, and placed into that vehicle. Uh, actually, the mission CONOPS, the launch requirements to, to safely launch it from Earth, and those would be the responsibilities for DARPA on the mission. So it will go up. This engine will have a some kind of a simulated craft, not simulated, but a, but a model type of craft that it's attached to. And how will that whole thing get up into space in the first place? So the, the entire vehicle, space vehicle, will actually be assembled on Earth. It's, you know, relatively small by, you know, launch payload standards, relatively low mass system. Those those aren't really constraints in terms of what we're doing. So we would launch an integrated system that would be ready to be essentially turned on and, and operated. It would include all the crowd fluid tanks, all of the avionics, all the controls, including the engine on it to demonstrate. And this is something I'm thinking minivan size type of thing? Yeah, I think that's a fair uh, approximation of what we would consider to be the size of the system. And, of course, you'll be able to measure all of its 
activities and parameters by telemetrics. Will it come back or will it just sort of burn no. up? So, you know, on the first, we will we will have it fully instrumented and we will have a robust uh, pallet of, of, of information will be generated from the test. It will be recorded, obviously digitally recorded. It will be transmitted back to Earth. We will be watching the operation of it in real time. When the demonstration mission is over, the system will be left in a near circular orbit thousands of kilometers away from Earth, and it will be safe there uh, orbiting the Earth for as long as it has or represents any radiation concern to, to Earth itself. It would, it would stay out there. And when is the planned launch of this thing? Right now, we believe that the launch will happen as early as calendar year 27. It's a very aggressive schedule that we're, we're looking to conduct this mission on, and so we're really quite anxious to get started. And will NASA be fabricating and crafting this engine itself, or do you use contractors that have knowledge of nuclear systems? So NASA will rely on an industry prime, uh, and actually uh, NASA will actually be using some of the the investments that DARPA has made up to this point to to get some of the industry engaged on this. But NASA and DARPA have both had engagements with industry over the past few years on this. So there's a good alignment between both communities. We're pretty well linked in terms of how we would look at that design to go and, and how we would build it. Right. So we won't see it overhead mixing in with all the mysterious balloons or anything in the next few months. This is years out yet. No, we'll, we'll be very clear about what it is that we're launching and what we're testing. Dr. Anthony Colomino is a program manager and a materials and structures engineer at NASA headquarters. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century 
educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider 
leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.